I want to thank Jonathan Henderson for joining us here today uh, from his home in Shreveport, Louisiana. Uh, John, thank you so much for coming out and joining us here in uh, beautiful Park City, Utah. Happy to be here. Well, we're glad you are. And uh, Jonathan's you know, an expert in uh, prostate cancer, I'll say. And You can uh, say that. I can't. Okay, I'll be happy to say that and because uh, I believe it and I tend to say things that I believe and then lie in between. But... Uh, uh, you've done some pretty remarkable things with your with your group in uh, in Shreveport, and I'd like to talk about that. Uh, you were one of the early adopters of uh, biomarkers to help your patients, and what I'd really like to ask you is, tell me how you use them, and give me you know, specifics on a couple of patients, maybe one that made it more you know you needed to be more aggressive on, and maybe one that you did that stand out in your mind that really changed how you thought to treat these guys. Well, sure. So back in 2012 or so, Prolaris was on the market with the post-prostatectomy test. And we saw a lot of value in that and became early adopters and then participated in trials with uh, the Prolaris biopsy test as well as the other people in the, uh, the other two companies in the field. And, you know, clinical trials is great for a practice like ours because it allows you to really get involved and understand a product before it's it's live and comes to market. And I think that's the reason we became early adopters, because we saw the impact it made for our patients. We had um, a number of patients in the post-prostatectomy Prolaris test who we identified it to be at high risk and went ahead prior to biochemical recurrence and treated them. Uh, that was a real common scenario. So then when it came forward into the the, uh, the biopsy arena, you know, the, it, you know that was gee, this is a no-brainer here because now we can look at patients and help determine if they need treatment at all, and if so, how aggressive do we need to be? Um, I remember a handful of patients. One of them needed radiation or opted radiation for his prostate. <clears throat> we had the conversation about ADT plus minus. He, uh, he agreed to start on ADT, did not like the side effects, but wanted to stop. Then we got the Prolaris test and realized that you know, he had a pretty high score was able to use that to convince him to continue ADT for a full two years. Um, and I, that's been four or five years ago, so he's doing well. Um, you know, on, on another one, this may be heresy to some people, but uh, in patients with a component of Gleason's 4 in their score, uh, many people say that no candidate at all for, for active surveillance. Mm -hmm. uh, but we've had not just 3 plus 4s, but even a few low-volume 4 plus 3s who have very favorable scores on Prolaris and have been on active surveillance now for five years. Now, would you, on a guy like that in particular, because I agree with you, and you know, we're kind of hesitant to do that because if they say they have a primary Gleason pattern four, you almost it's an automatic treatment. Right. That's what most people feel, and I agree with you. We did the same thing, low volume, in our practice. Not many, right. uh, because it was hard to talk to people about that. You have an unfavorable intermediate, but we can watch you. And that just didn't sit well with a lot of people. But then you show them the score and you, you can say, hey, you know, you're older and you've got other medical problems. When you had guys like that, would it be guys like that that maybe had some comorbidities or would it be guys that not necessarily did that, but you were you just kept a close eye on them? Yes. Yeah, I mean, it, it, uh, the ability to gauge the clinical aggressiveness of the tumor helps craft how closely you watch them. It really impacts every aspect, as you know. Mm -hmm. um, the the patient, the, the modern Prolaris report that incorporates 
disease-specific mortality and risk of metastases, puts it into a percentage number to discuss with the patients, really enables a true informed decision-making. And I mean, that's, that's key. If you're going to have a primary component of four in that decision-making process, that's when, where, whereas some people may just academically say, no way, um, you know, well, the patient should make the ultimate choice. And that's why I like the, the way the test is presented now because it puts it into terms that anybody can wrap their mind around. Mm-hmm. When you have a patient you have on active surveillance, um, I'm guessing just from your comments that you make that you're not surveying them the same, that you use different parameters, whether they're, it's their risk factors or, or in combination with Polaris. Can you talk a little about how you use the combination of the clinical and the, the Polaris and how you make you know, change how you survey these people. Yeah, just in, in general, there's sort of, there, there's sort of, there are sort of two strata of active surveillance patients, right? Mm-hmm. You've got your low risk and your high risk. The three plus threes are low, and everybody else is the high, higher of, the, of that particular strata. And uh, Prolaris helps you know, separate them if they're going to, for example, have an annual confirmatory biopsy, right? If the Prolaris is high, then we're going to push more for a biopsy rather than relying on PSA or MRI. So it just helps determine how aggressively to follow the active surveillance patient. What is the longest that you can recall going out and not doing a, a biopsy? Which I know is, you know, people talk about, well, you have to do confirmatory biopsies, but, you know, with MRI and following PSA and, and also adding the Polaris on, how comfortable do you feel or what's the time frame you feel comfortable until you do a second biopsy? In general, even with Prolaris, mm-hmm. I like to have it within a year or two at the latest. Mm-hmm. I have had one patient that I can think of, just off the cuff, that went three years prior to the confirmatory biopsy. And Prolaris was key in, in allowing him to go that long. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a favorable score, so we let it rock along. At year three, though, PSA was, you know, inching up the way they do. Mm-hmm. And I finally said, look, we got to have at least one more biopsy to stay on this path. What do you do for a guy like that? I'm assuming that it came back and it had not progressed right. on that guy. What do you do with a guy like that, that on a second biopsy hasn't progressed, they have a good Polaris score? What's your what's your plan after that, typically? Uh, continue to watch PSA at intervals mm-hmm. and MRI or biopsy at intervals. And those are lengthening intervals. We have, nobody has, to my knowledge, perfected a standardized active surveillance protocol that's been adopted across the country. You're absolutely right. So we we have what we think um, makes sense based on what evidence we have. Mm-hmm. And depending on their strata, after they have their confirmatory biopsy, uh, we will lengthen the distance between PSAs and either MRI or biopsy. And if they're a 3 plus 3 and their PSA is stable and they've had their confirmatory biopsy, We'll allow them to go yearly on their PSAs and without another confirmatory biopsy ever if nothing changes. Yeah, I think that's a great way to look at it. Yeah. But again, Prolaris is key in there mm-hmm. uh, because, because biopsy alone, H&E stain doesn't tell you everything you need to know to make that kind of decision. Right. You know, and that's true. I mean, people forget that it's a, it's a measure of aggressiveness. It really tells you what's going to happen in the future. It's not what's happening when you're looking at it statically. Uh, I want to change gears a little bit. Uh, you guys have, again, been early adopters when, when 
the information came out about hereditary cancer and how it can affect prostate cancer patients. Um, and you guys have developed a really proficient uh, clinic for this and, and testing patients. Uh, can you talk a little bit how that got started and, and how um, and how it's going and how do you and what's your process because you've got a good one going. Well, you're kind to say that. I, we we did start early. I don't know how proficient we are. We've got a long way to go. Well, um, the, the perception is that you're proficient. <laughs> I, I think we do a, a better job than most right now. Um, and it all started with just believing, right? It, when you started to look at the data five, six years ago, and as NCCN started to write it into the, it started to write prostate cancer screening into the hereditary breast and ovary cancer guidelines, mm -hmm. which is why it was sort of slow to pick up in our space. Um, nevertheless, it was in guidelines. And when we became aware of that and started to research it a little more and start to see that, you know what, not only is it guideline-based, but it's actionable, then we decided we need to be adopters here. We looked around our community and I don't know how it's represented elsewhere, but in our community, only about a third of the female patients were even having tests offered by their OBGYNs. Which is very surprising. It is surprising. In this day and age, especially. It, it, to me, it is, but yeah. the more of, my, of our comrades I've talked to, yeah. I don't think our situation is that unique. I think you're right. And so. It's scary, though. So we, we thought, okay, we've got an option not only to tr test our prostate cancer patients, but if we're going to have a protocol in-house and dedicated people and pathways, offer it to our female patients as well, who are there obviously for other problems. And that's what we did. And you've, you've seen the data. When we first rolled that out, just in an uh, eight-week window, we uh, gave everybody who came in the doors questionnaires to see if they qualified by NCCN guidelines to be tested. And a third of the women qualified. I know. Just all comers. And that, was, that had nothing to do whether they had cancer or family or anything. It was just the questionnaire and who qualified for testing. Exactly. Yeah, and it was, it, that's pretty staggering that everybody that walks in and, you know, and I have people that say to me, oh, we don't want to test because there aren't enough people out there that qualify. And then you look at this and when a third of the people that just walk in the door, if they have a kidney stone or want a vasectomy, they may qualify for testing. Right. And that's, that's right. and, and And the data mm -hmm. tells us that one in six prostate cancer patients will have a hereditary defect. And so how can you make the argument that I don't have enough patients? Yeah. And, and it's interesting that you say that because the, the data is, is, shows that there are actually less women that will have the breast cancer genes for breast cancer than there are men that will have them for prostate cancer. It's, it's close, but there are actually more men that will test positive than there are women that will test positive, which is... But testing has far more penetrated the females than men. Right. And we're very far behind. But the other interesting thing that you mentioned is that the prostate cancer was part of the breast and ovarian cancer guidelines. It was sitting there for years before any urologist really picked up on it and say, hey, if it's part of this, how does it affect prostate cancer? And I think that wasn't until um, the Castro article back several years ago, and then it was an article by Pritchard that came out that really kind of blew it up uh, into the limelight for urologists. And hopefully we won't take 20, to, you know, 20 years or so to adopt it in urology. I think it's moving pretty quickly. Not only the articles that you mentioned, but also the advent of um, more actionable treatments, mm -hmm. I think. So when people started to look at uh, PARP inhibitors in advanced prostate cancer, it gave us a little bit more of a reason to look. And then we started to find out that even upstream of that, uh, the BRAC positive 
prostate cancer patients. We're going to be less sensitive to the hormonal therapy, less sensitive to the taxanes, more sensitive to platinum. Mm-hmm. And so it totally changes a, a wide variety of our patients, even back then. And, and since then, we've, we've been able to advance it into in even other areas. I had a patient who, um, who came to us and had uh, known Lynch syndrome. And so we looked at his genetic profile, and his uh, particular gene mutation made him more susceptible to the effects of radiation and secondary uh, malignancies. So he had a 3 plus 3. His prolaris was favorable. But he said, you know, given my hereditary problem, mm-hmm. I want to go ahead and have a prostatectomy rather than risk this advancing, and I'm older and not wanting to have radiation and risk another malignancy from that. Yeah, pretty amazing. You also, you, you told me about a patient of yours that you had, um, and this was a guy that was on compassionate use for yeah, part. Yeah. yeah, that was a fascinating story. Can you yeah, tell me about that story. guy? Yeah, it's yeah, a, great a great story. Great story. Yeah, remind me about that. So uh, Ronnie, was, uh, he was a great guy. He came to me, he was 60 years old, and he was a mechanic at an auto shop. And a year before I saw him with a PSA of 33, he had a negative biopsy elsewhere. Um, he came to me with a PSA of 280. Uh, just a year later, I did a biopsy. Every core positive, Gleason's nine. And uh, went ahead and got a bone scan, was negative, but his CT scan showed significant retroperitoneal adenopathy, mm-hmm. um, all the way up, in, including mediastinal. And so we got him started on ADT, obviously, and. Um, you know, he never nadired below 10 and stayed he- uh, hovered at 10 for only three to six months and started to climb, became castration resistant very quickly. Started him on, on all the, he raced through all the therapies. I uh, went through Zytiga, had docetaxel, uh, 10 courses of docetaxel, uh, responded somewhat to that, but six weeks after cessation was advancing again. Uh, went to enzalutamide. Uh, after that, went to Jevtana. About that time, I asked um, Oliver Sarter to take a look at him and tell me what I'm missing. And he said, "You know, Jonathan, have you have you checked his his genes? Uh, you know, this was I'm embarrassed to say this was at the time when we're putting pencil to paper to start our own program, and I had a guy right here in my own face I hadn't thought about." And so Oliver tested him, he came back BRAC2 positive. So it sort of made clear why he had just raced through all of the other therapies. So with Oliver's assistance, we got a lap rib, compassionate use for the guy. Now let me set the stage here. This was Christmas time. And uh, this was this was three years after diagnosis, give or take. And he is in the hospital. His, his disease now, he, he has two bony meds, but they're not that significant. Uh, one's in the spine, one's in the iliac wing. His retroperitoneal meds have gotten crazy. He now has two huge meds in his liver. One is 15 centimeters, one is six. He's got uh, lung nodules, and uh, he has his liver is causing such ascites that he's having to have a paracentesis, tapping off four liters every three or four days. Inpatient, and oh, by the way, he's got bilateral, uh, bilateral DVTs, bilateral PEs. Uh, he's on oxygen. We finally stabilized him enough to get him home. That's when, actually, we had him tested. And so he comes in. He says, Doc, I think I'm ready. I mean, you've helped me. Thank you. I fought the fight. And um, the next day, Oliver calls with his results. Within two weeks, he's on Limparza. 
Within a month, he goes from the patient I just told you about to an ECOG of zero. He's running laps around me. He's building a fence and a deck on his house. He says he hasn't felt this good in 10, 15 years. He scans the liver mets. Uh, one's totally regressed. One's down to two centimeters. The ascites is gone. The bony mets are gone. The retroperitoneal adenopathy is to a minimum. And his PSA goes down to about three. Where it was at 3,800, goes down to about three. Um, just an amazing story. And in, in, in 25 years, I've never think, seen anything even close to it. And I realize he's a one-off. And I don't, I don't want anybody to think that's the expected result. Right. But when you hear stories like that, at least you say... For these, for some of these men, you're going to have that kind of, you know, an amazing result. And for the majority of men, there you're going to get some improvement if they right. qualify. And it's just something that we're going to have, and, and hopefully we'll be able to bring it further, closer well, on to the uh, in the treatment algorithm instead of you know towards the end. Well, even if each of us, each practicing urologist, gets to see that once in his career, right? I mean, it makes my hair stand up just to think that we yeah. could all have that patient. No, he lived. When you talk about this, and I've heard this story before. I get chills. Yeah. He lived through, so we got him started on lap rib in March. He passed away the following March. What was really cool was he had that same performance status until less than four weeks till he died. When he progressed, he progressed rapidly, but his widow said, you know what? It couldn't have been more perfect. You gave us a year of perfect quality of life, and then he didn't have to linger. And so that, that's that's just the biggest win I've ever been part of. Yeah. And, and that really, like I said, that happened right when we're getting our program started up. So that just pushed us on to get it going. And yeah. so we hired a PA strictly to be trained and help uh, get our program up and running. I told you about the questionnaire we had. And right. so we still let all of our patients in their intake process fill out the hereditary uh, health questionnaire. Are you still doing that? Still are. So and every patient that walks in the door. Mm-hmm. And it's on the portal. Mm-hmm. And um, the Advanced Prostate Cancer Clinic, as well as the Early Prostate Cancer Clinic, um, we try to adhere to guidelines, which, as you know, now NCC and guidelines have now gotten into the prostate cancer space. Right. And unfortunately, our, the payers aren't quite up with the prostate cancer guidelines. They really pay well for HBOC, right. but not for prostate cancer. What I mean by that is, you know, now, regardless of family history, if you've got a high-risk prostate cancer, uh, localized, you qualify, mm-hmm. right? And yep. um, the uh, and then the family history obviously goes along with it. But we try to encourage everybody who qualifies to get screened, and we're, we're really seeing actionable results. We have had... Um, you know, in the past two years, we've had oh, around two dozen meaningful mutations. Uh, and, and I say meaningful, I mean really actionable. We've had a number of other mutations that have led men to have other screenings done. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, a mutation that makes them at risk for a uh, higher risk for a colon cancer. Now we're having colonoscopies every two years instead of every five or ten. So, you know, the, it's like everything else we do in, in medicine. It's actionable when you stop and think how it should be employed. Mm-hmm. No, and I, and I want to thank you for sharing those stories with us. And your and your, I'm going to call use the word remarkable use of uh, of new technology, the the genetics and genomics, because most people aren't willing to take that leap and uh, and see that the outcomes that you've changed on a lot of these patients have been well worth you know your efforts. So I want to thank you. And oh, thank you. Uh, it's it's been a pleasure. You know, you and I, I think all of us get into this 
for the same altruistic, altruistic reasons. Mm-hmm. And when we see them come true, it just really makes it all worthwhile. And that's why we're here. You know, that's, I think the problem is somebody, people forget that. Yeah. Well, you know, burnout's a key phrase these days. Uh, we talk about health policy. I think mm-hmm. that's a big reason for burnout uh, is, is the governmental regulations put on us. Mm-hmm. But you get patients like this, and it, it, it's, it, it makes everything else melt away. It takes one. Yeah, one keeps you. I think it's like that. If you have one great outcome once a year, or maybe even as you can call it an unexpected outcome, but it's always positive, that keeps you going for. It can keep you going for years. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate. Thank it. you, Doug.